This episode of The Way Home Podcast is brought to you by Relentless, Gospel Courage in a Complex Culture, a special pre-conference hosted by the ERLC and the Gospel Coalition at the 2017 TGC Conference. Find out more at erlc.com slash events. And so when you, when you tailor your own news intake and your own feed and everyone you listen to, to already be people who are generally in agreement with you and the way you see the world, then you're getting a dose of two things from the phone. You have everything you need to know and you are right. So is it any wonder that commenters on blogs and Facebook and Twitter tend to be, shall we say, less than pleasant? So here's a question. Should Christians lament or be excited about living out their faith in the 21st century? Your answer to that question is a good indicator of how you see yourself and your mission in the world. To help us with this, I've invited my longtime friend Trevin Wax to join us. Trevin is the Bible and Reference Publisher at B&H Publishing. He's also the managing editor of the very popular Gospel Project curriculum. Trevin is a thoughtful voice and the author of several books, including his latest, which we'll discuss, entitled This Is Our Time. He also blogs regularly at the Gospel Coalition. Trevin and I will discuss Christians and our politics, how different generations of the church see the world, and why he is hopeful about living out the gospel in today's complex culture. Thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Glad to walk across the street. Get to talk to you. It was a long, long drive, (laughs) long commute for you. So we're here to talk about your new book, This Is Our Time, which I think Pardon the pun is a very timely book. I hope so. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, I should have called it This Was Our Time. Yeah, This right? Was Our Time. We missed our moment. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So explain to me um, the title and sort of like what you're trying to do with this book and what's the kind of the message you're trying to send. Yeah. So the, the title has something of a double meaning. Um, mm-hmm. it, well, not not necessarily that it means two different things, but that there's different aspects in, included mm-hmm. in that title. So uh, first, I'm offering snapshots of contemporary North American 21st century culture mm-hmm. throughout the book, different spheres of our life, different aspects of life. Um, so I'm saying this is our time. I'm wanting to give a picture of what our uh, of what this particular moment looks like. And so that's why you know I'm going to be dealing with everything from uh, smartphone use and mm-hmm. social media, um, Hollywood and the stories that we we mm-hmm. tell through um, uh, movies and things and shopping, consumerism, what people sort of construe the purpose of their life being, politics and what our posture should be, sex, marriage, theories about progress. Are we getting better? Is the world getting better? Are we declining? Mm-hmm. All of these are, are aspects of our contemporary moment. And so on the one hand, that's the first thing that I'm saying. I'm saying, look, this is our time. Take a look at if we're going to be good missionaries in the culture that God has called us to be in, then we need to be aware of what the society is that we are called to reach. So that's on the one hand. Then the hour is there. This is our time. And part of that is a uh, there. there's a bit of a challenge in that to say, this is the time right now when our generation is on the platform, mm-hmm. when the curtain is up and it's our time to to be uh, uh, faithful to Christ in this moment. We, we're surrounded by the great cloud of witnesses. If you want to mm-hmm. switch metaphors and go to the racetrack, we are right now running the race and right. the cloud of witnesses is cheering us on, but this is our moment. And so rather than complain or 
groan over the difficulties of this current moment or these the aspects or the, the parts of the challenge of being a Christian today that we don't like. I'm saying, no, this is our time. Come on, let's not let's not be nostalgic for other people's eras. Let's yeah. let's be faithful. I, I, I was gonna ask about God's that because I think some of our um our posture is often like a kind of lamenting where we're at and wanting to go back to some mythical time period in history that where things were good, which really never existed. That's why I really like the the ethos of the book. You're saying, man, God has not made a mistake by calling us to this place in this time in this context, right? I mean, we're 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 not the people who look back, right? We're people who look forward. That's right. And you know, whenever we are questioning or we're mm-hmm. bemoaning the fact that this is the the challenge that we have mm-hmm. these challenges to face in this time, we're really questioning the sovereignty and goodness of God of yes. of putting us in this moment. You know, there's a reason why God put us here and now. And I think we get the geography aspect of our mission fairly well in that we sense, you know, God has has designed for us to be in this place. And we talk all the time about being on mission in our workplace or in our home or in the culture that God has called us to be in, you know, in the country that God uh, has placed us in. Um, it's, for some of us, He calls us to other countries as well. But I, I think we get the where, but we also need to get the when of mission, that God mm-hmm. has called us to be faithful in this particular moment. Not So if we're going to be good missionaries, we not only have to know where we are to serve Christ, we also know, need to know when we are called, uh, mm-hmm. what it means to be faithful in this particular moment. And that's going to differ from generation to generation. Um, it, it seems a particularly difficult thing for American Christians because for a couple of reasons. For one, you know, we've we've kind of had this sense that we're a Christian nation, whether or not, that's a good discussion to have, are we a Christian nation, are we not? But that America is our home rather than a mission field, hmm. which I know you've written about that before, about America being Israel or Babylon and how do we view it. But secondly, you know, we have such an opportunity to shape the uh, society that we live in, the laws, the, the culture. So part of that um, shaping is kind of pushing back against what we don't like and trying to change it. And so I wonder how those two things kind of work against us seeing our 21st century North America as a, a mission field to which God has called us to. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. And I, I think I think there are a lot of Americans that feel somewhat disoriented by the rapid changes mm-hmm. in culture, the rapid changes, particularly in areas related to, to morality. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I don't think that all American Christians have that same sense of disorientation, partly because I think it's more white Christians feel that way because mm-hmm. they haven't necessarily been on the margins the way many of our black brothers and sisters have been. That's exactly so, right. So there's a... It's it's kind of fun in this in this time when there's a, a lot of racial tension in our country, and you see um, strides and efforts and setbacks and steps forward and back and racial reconciliation uh, in the church. It's 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 nice to actually be able to hear from African American brothers and sisters who who can when when we talk about being more on the margins and no longer mm-hmm. being close to the halls of power or things like that. They you know a lot of them are like yeah we. Yeah. Welcome. We've, we've been, been here a here long all, time. Yeah, you know, we've the, been here all along. <laughs> the existence of the black church is yeah. in, is uh, an indictment in that sense of of mm-hmm. um, uh, the the power structures that were generations before. But I but I would say uh, one of the one of the aspects we have to keep in mind uh, on this is it's always the best of times and the worst of times. Mm-hmm. You can always find aspects of 
the world in previous generations that you would say, look at what God was doing. Look, mm-hmm. this was amazing what God was up to. And at the same time, you can look at at things and say, look, things were were awful. There was this going on and mm-hmm. that going on. And you've got so knowing that rather than having this mythical understanding of the past of being some sort of pristine place that we would ever go back to, mm-hmm. whatever era we choose. Different Christians like different eras, yeah. you know? Some say, oh, early church. Let's go back to the early church. Okay, well, I mean... Which early church? Yeah, Corinth. Corinth yeah, you know? Corinth or... Uh, they were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. I mean, in Galatians, you already I mean, have this... Yeah, the gospel. This I mean, church, in, not, not a split, but you have two major leaders like, you know, disagreeing with each other. And, oh, absolutely. That's yeah. what, I mean, Thessalonian church had lost their hope. In Corinth, they're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. I mean, yeah. that's a lot of the little cups, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, but then, yeah, okay, so some people are like, oh, the early church fathers. Yeah. Okay, well, there's a lot of treasure there, but then there's also the asceticism that led to mm-hmm. downplaying the value of the body in some cases. And, uh, uh, you know, then people are like, oh, the reformers, you know, the young restless reform. Let's go back to the Puritan age. Okay, a lot of beauty there, but that all of the reformers have are tainted in some way or yeah, another, absolutely. you know, from Calvin's treatment of uh, dissidents to Luther's anti-Semitism mm-hmm. to Jonathan Edwards being a slave owner. Yeah. I mean, you have so and and even in the revival times, I mean we could we could go back to every generation and there is no perfect pinnacle from which we have fallen. Yeah. And so I think we we need to recognize as Christians church history is wonderful for us. It, but it is a treasure box, not a map. Mm, you're not good. you're not going to go forward by doing the exact same things in the same ways as our church fathers, mm-hmm. as if that were even possible. We're going to look back at our fathers and mothers in the faith, and we're going to find the treasure box. There are going to be things there that will help us on our journey, but we don't have the map there. We have mm-hmm. that's part of what it means for us to to be growing in maturity and discernment and uh, shining like stars in the generation that God has called us to. I think of that verse in Hebrews, you know, where it says that they look for a city whose builder and maker is God. You know, mm. the faithful Christians are always looking forward. You know, That's they're right. looking, we're, as um, Russell Moore says, we're not marching to Mayberry, but we're marching to Zion, you know. Right. So your, your book really helps us strike a balance between, I would say, nostalgia and, and naivete on the other hand. And I want to talk about that latter thing a little bit. You talk about some of the myths that kind of are pervasive in, in in the culture around us that we need to kind of understand and be able to um, really combat and deconstruct. What are two or three of the of the kind of myths that you think we're tempted to to buy into as Christians? Yeah, when I talk about myths, I'm not simply talking about falsehoods like mm-hmm. lies. I'm talking about stories that give shape to our lives, right? So. For example, one of the myths right now in our society that is very dominant, I devote a whole chapter to this because I think it's it's so vitally important for church leaders especially to know this, is that um, roughly 80, I think it's 86% of the American population say that the purpose of life is to, in, is to enjoy yourself mm. and the pleasures you can find in this life. Mm. To, to put it another way, that means 86% of Americans are hedonists. <laughs> wow. That's basically the philosophy of hedonism, enjoying... Yeah. Enjoying your life is the highest purpose of life. Mm. Okay, that is very far from seeing your life as part of a story where the chief end of man is to glorify God mm. and enjoy Him forever. Right. So, um, and then ninety-one percent of Americans say to find yourself, you look within yourself. Mm. So you put those things together, and then you look at the church-going Christians, not just those who check Christian on the survey, but the sur- the research shows that practicing Christians, church-going Christians, the numbers are not that different 
60-something percent say enjoying yourself as the highest goal of life, and 70-something percent say to find yourself, look within yourself. Mm. So you see that, and what you're seeing is, okay, there are people in our congregations, maybe even you know ourselves. We need to look at deep into our own hearts, and we need to uh, examine the, the myths that we may have believed. We are assuming things about the world without question, without even recognizing how we're being shaped. But uh, worldliness doesn't come just in the forms that we tend to have have um, made it out to be in, in previous generations. It also comes in the way we we think, what we assume, how uh, what how we how we make decisions in life. What are the unconscious things that are going into how we uh, see the world and see our way forward. And so that's an example when it comes to the purpose of life being just to enjoy yourself. Mm-hmm. That is an example of a myth that has a hold on our generation. Mm-hmm. And what does it look like as Christians to come along to actually be able to respond to uh, to see that myth, but then also respond in a way that shows no the the gospel tells a better story than that. Yeah, uh, I, it, I like that. That's how you frame it because I really feel that way. Like everybody is telling some kind of story or believing some kind of story about about themselves, about how we got here, about uh, their purpose, about you know what the future is, and ultimately we believe that all those stories end end up in disappointment and disillusionment. That's right. They can't satisfy, and we we're able to press the gospel story, this grand gospel narrative. Um, into uh, our culture, which is why I like your book, because it's very hopeful. Like To be missionaries in this culture is really a great opportunity, right? I mean, the gospel seems more relevant now than, it, than it's ever been to what people are, are struggling through. My question, though, is just for Christians, it seems like pastors and church leaders have to really be aware um, of not just a few set of things that they might tend to be aware of in terms of uh, myths and 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 falsehoods in the culture, but a wide range of things, you know. So we we may tend as white evangelical pastors to push back on stuff from the left, you know, like whether it's the sexual revolution or uh, other things like that, which is important. But I'm guessing there's there's just a wider range of things that we need to press the gospel into, right? It's true, and I mean, I, I think one of the uh, when it comes to political. Uh, type things. Mm-hmm. The the person who's who's truly prophetic and is going to be formed uh, by Scripture more than their political parties. Let the church be formative more than uh, either Republican, Democrat, right or left. Is going to find themselves not feeling at home anywhere. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That doesn't mean that Christians won't belong to parties and mm-hmm. try to influence and change and work. But there, it's always going to be a mixed bag. And if you don't sense that at all in whatever party that you belong to, that there are aspects of politics that that uh, go against what Christian teaching is, what what the church's values are, mm-hmm. then you really have to question which is more formative for you, your your party affiliation or the Church of Jesus Christ. There should be places where you are constantly feeling like you are out of step with, with people mm-hmm. on both sides because our political parties are not driven by um, by scripture or by Christian worldview. Thankfully, there are Christian worldview elements mm-hmm. in in the political parties that we have, but they're not they're they're not the dominant um, force there. So, uh, yeah, I I think I think Christians have to get used to not quite fitting in anywhere and be okay and with good. with being weird that way because yeah. that's actually where the beauty of Christian truth is. It would seem too um, that. 
we as as pastors and leaders, we need to really be vigilant to uh, to sort of see what's going on and and press the gospel into those areas, and and challenge our people and be prophetic within our own tribes. And uh, I, I like what you said about about political parties because um, I think it seems like sometimes we are tempted to give our party or our movement, whether it's conservative or progressive or Republican or Democrat, a kind of authority and almost an inerrancy that really is only reserved for for scripture, right? I mean, is that's sort of a temptation. Why do you think that is? Oh, I think a lot of that goes back to social pressure. We mm-hmm. are community beings. We aren't just people who think logical thoughts in our heads. We are influenced by uh, by people. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's it's fascinating to watch how party pressure can work. You can actually see the parties, and this has happened before mm-hmm. in our society multiple times, you can see parties actually switch positions. Yeah. And people switch their positions to be in line with the party mm-hmm. rather than the principle holding firm no matter what happened with the mm-hmm. with the party. I mean, you think of a Richard John Newhouse, mm-hmm. for example, who was a progressive for many years, very loyal, active member of the Democratic Party. And um, when the Democratic Party shifted into a pro-abortion stance, he was on the outs all mm-hmm. of a sudden, even with people that had been pro-life with him who were becoming pro-choice as a result of party pressure. I mean, mm-hmm. all sorts of things can happen. All th- so the history of abortion in this country is is fascinating to, to read the politics behind that, um, from the switching over from the Kennedys to Jesse Jackson to Al mm-hmm. Gore. I mean, oh, just yeah. all, uh, Dick Gephardt, all the way down the line. But but then the same thing happens on the, the right. Absolutely. In, uh, and is happening even today in some aspects. Yeah. People that would not have counted certain views even four or five years ago at least find them palatable or not worthy of dismissing or yeah. pushing aside. So I, I think that we, we need to be aware of those party pressures. The real question, though, comes back to what is forming us? Mm-hmm. What is what, what are we allowing to form us and to shape us? Is it scripture? Is it the church? Mm-hmm. Is it the people of God who um, we listen to from across the world, not just in our own culture, these are questions we should ask, or is it MSNBC or Fox right. News or... You know. I want to lean in on that because I think one of the things you and I have talked about even you know, in conversations is that it seems like there's a couple dynamics at work here. One is you know the increasing tribalism where we kind of form into tribes. And, and it seems like digital social media uh, has, has kind of enabled that uh, we can find uh, like-minded people, and there's benefits to that. But... Um, but it also seems like our generation, and, and when I say our, I say like pastors that are maybe under 50 or something, we're so, um, it seems like we're so allergic to talking about politics in the pulpit or in the church for good reasons. Uh, we, we, you know, we don't want to turn the auditorium into a party rally or something like that. But it seems like in doing so, we don't address topics and issues. We don't help form the consciences of our people and kind of cede authority to other voices. So we're telling our people subconsciously that if you want to learn about piety and you want to learn about prayer and you want to learn about evangelism and Bible study, you can come to church. But if you want to know how to, a Christian should interact on these other issues that are going on in the world, we really don't have anything for that. And so people have made these talk show hosts or cable news channels or internet pundits, you know, kind of their high priest. Go-to people for that. Um, do, you, do you see that dynamic, that that we kind of need a recovery of 
helping people apply the scriptures to to the world? Yeah, what I what I see there is there are two extremes here, two poles that I think we'd want to be careful of. One is quietism, Mm -hmm. where everything is focused on personal piety and not really Mm -hmm. connected to practice or politics or anything outside of the the enclave of the Christian community. And the other is activism, in which at times, I've seen this happen too, with churches on both the right and the left, um, is that eventually a cause, and it may even be a good cause, Mm -hmm. uh, replaces the cross as the center Mm -hmm. of Christian proclamation. Mm -hmm. And so you, you think you're being prophetic in that in that moment, but actually, um, you're you're using the cross to champion your cause mm-hmm. rather than seeing the cause as something flowing from the cross. And this this sounds like I'm splitting hairs here, but this is vitally mm-hmm. vitally important. Um, so yes, on the one hand, we have some churches and pastors who never ever address any political mm-hmm. issues from the pulpit. And I want to give pastors leeway. I'm a teaching pastor at my church. I recognize there are some things I can do in the uh, the, the teaching time mm-hmm. from the platform that there are some things I can do there, and there are other things that would be better for me to actually address in more Q&A sessions or in things I'm writing, different format, and partly because some of what we deal with politically is not a thus saith the Lord. Right. It's a matter of prudence. That's right. right. And I want to be really careful that Mm -hmm. I'm never giving the impression when I'm preaching that I'm necessarily pushing for a specific policy or candidate or something because I don't – because I do think there's got to be room for Christians to – use the wisdom they have to apply yeah. in, in different situations. It would seem that the way we do it is, um, you know, we're faithful to preach the word, but in our application, it seems like in our application, we can do better at really finding and applying it to the questions people are actually asking rather yeah. than kind of like, for instance, if, if I'm preaching through the Great Commission passages or th- through the book of Acts and talking about Pentecost, I've heard a lot of messages on those from white pastors, but really missing what God is doing in bringing the nations together sure. and how uh, the gospel really brings races and ethnicities together. And so there's some application there, even as you're going through a book. That's right. It would seem like we would try to find the um, the questions our people are actually asking and, and poke it at those things, right? Yeah. No, and I, th- I think we should I think we should do that as well. Um, the the a good preacher is going to do two things. They're going to answer questions that people are asking, mm-hmm. and they're also going to bring up questions that people haven't thought to ask. That they need to be asking. That they yeah. need to be asking. And that's the and that's the challenge, is mm-hmm. to do both of those things well. And that and, and it's difficult. If you only answer the questions people are asking, you let the world drive the agenda for the church. Mm. If you only bring up the questions, though, that people you think people should be asking, then you're not actually listening. What I love how Stott con- uses the mm-hmm. the concept of double listening, mm-hmm. where you're listening um, with you know one ear to to scripture and one ear to the culture, so that you know how to speak in ways that are actually going to uh, to resonate. And so, yeah, it would seem we need to form, uh, be being formed to live in the world as it is, uh, which is really the theme of your book. Every day, it seems we're overwhelmed with news that scrolls across our timelines. How do we react? How do we talk about it with our kids? What should the church do? Join us at a special ERLC pre-conference at the 2017 Gospel Coalition Conference in Indianapolis. 
This special pre-conference will feature Russell Moore, Jen Wilkin, Crawford Loritz, Nancy Guthrie, Kevin DeYoung, Jackie Hill Perry, Sam Albury, and many others. Check out the link at erlc.com events. Get your ticket now for $25 and get an extra $5 off if you use the coupon code WAYHOME. That's WAYHOME in all caps. We'd love to see you in Indianapolis. One of the things that you you address that I think um, is going to be an emerging issue in, in, in our churches is just what do we do with the fact that we're so digitally connected? What is technology doing to us? Uh, what is a Christian ethic for uh, consuming technology, the kind of rapid news cycle, the connectedness with social media? What do you have to, to say to that, and what do you... Uh, sort of counsel Christian leaders as they lead their people on these things? Well, there's a reason why after the introduction of this book, the first chapter is called Your Phone is a Myth Teller, Mm. because I I wanted to start close to home. And for most of us, that means in our pocket, you know, where we actually feel, or if not in your pocket, you still feel phantom vibrations, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, I wanted to start with the phone because that is really where a lot of us us live. And what what I think we need to recognize with this piece of technology is that the phone is shaping our outlook on life. Mm. The phone is constantly telling us you are the center of the universe. Mm. Everything about the phone is designed to flatter you. All the apps, everything that you've got is meant to actually be tailored to your own custom experience and giving you whatever it is that you need. And you need to realize uh, why people, why it's so easy to go to our phones instead of face-to-face, flesh-and-blood conversation a lot of times with other people is because it's easier mm-hmm. to, whenever we're bored for a moment, to suddenly you know, slip back into to this. And so on social media, the phone is telling us there's two things going on. We're, we're presenting something to the world through mm-hmm. our, our social media, uh, usually through the phone. And then the phone is also telling us a couple of things. And one of the myths that the phone tells us is that you have everything you need to know right here. Mm-hmm. You can, I mean, you can ask Siri, you can get on Wikipedia, you can mm-hmm. find out, and you can find out facts about life, but you aren't necessarily receiving wisdom mm-hmm. through your phone. So the first myth that the phone tells you is you've got everything you need. You can you know everything you need to know, or if you don't know it, you can find it. the The second myth that the phone is constantly telling you is that you are right. You talk about getting on, you know, with tribes on social mm-hmm. media. We a lot of people think they're being prophetic. They're really shouting into an echo chamber. Right, um, that's and, exactly right. And 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 when they're and when they're doing that, they're actually um, signaling their own rightness of their of their views. Mm-hmm. And so when you when you tailor your own news intake and your own feed and everyone you listen to, to already be people who are generally in agreement with you and the way you see the world, then you're getting a dose of two things from the phone. You have everything you need to know, and you are right. So is it any wonder that commenters on blogs and Facebook and Twitter tend to be, shall we say, less than pleasant, okay? (laughs) Because they have been formed Mm-hmm. in many cases for years by the phone telling them you have everything you need to know right here and you are right and so when they come across people who have a completely different perspective they think they either must be stupid because they don't know everything i know or they think they must be evil because they're 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 putting this this viewpoint and and they know better and they're not and that's why 
online discourse degenerates into this awful fighting match a lot of times that and even Christians can can give up civility. It, it actually seems like um, and, and even um, non-Christian writers and observers have have observed kind of what technology is doing to us. Um, there's an article in Wired magazine where, where the guy basically says that we've become like demigods, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it seems like that's exactly what you're saying. Like the phone turns us into a little god, right? We can control our flow of information. It gives us this myth of being powerful, right? But then also it gives us a myth of having like a tribe that's following us. Right. You know, we can we can go find somebody who agrees with us or a group of people who agree with us. And I also wonder, uh, we, we haven't had a whole generation grow up with this and kind of see the results of it, but what is it doing to us that every one of us by virtue of social media, it's kind of our play acting. I mean, we're 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 um, we're all kind of mini celebrities in some ways, right? We have to sort of uh, perform online, or yeah, we're the center of our story. We're the mm-hmm. center. We're the one who, yeah, we're putting on a presentation and a display for other people. Um, yeah, that so that goes from we just talked about the myths that our phones tell mm-hmm. us. That really is the myth that we create through our phones. Mm-hmm. And I I think we've got to we've got to do some deep digging there into what's going on in the heart when people are trying to present a vision of themselves to the world a lot of times they're it's ironic but we're doing two things we're putting ourselves out there because we want to be known but we're also sometimes hiding our true selves because we want to be loved mm. and i think the one of the deep longings mm. that is at the heart of humanity is to be fully known and fully loved mm. and the phone works against both of those both of those things. It, it, it's like a cheap substitute, you know. That's right. If you if you think about it, um, the phone says that you're a god, but in Christ, you know, we're kings and queens of the universe, right? And and which is much and already beloved, already accepted, we're already loved, yeah, uh, already loved by the God who knows us fully, not just the Wikipedia version of our lives, mm. but actually knows us through and through, and still loves us. And so um, it, it's easy for us to turn to social media, to the phone, to that mm-hmm. aspect of life um, in order to find validation, acceptance. And I, I think the gospel puts the phone back in its place and and shine. It, one of the things I'm doing throughout this book, uh, not just in this chapter on the phone, but in lots of the chapters, mm-hmm. I'm convinced that if we're going to really be discerning in our day and age, we have got to ask not just the the question of what lies are out there in society, what falsehoods mm-hmm. are exposed by the gospel, but also to ask the question of what are the deeper longings mm-hmm. in those myths mm-hmm. that the gospel can fulfill. And I, 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 I actually divide people up in. Christians up into two categories. You've got your lie detector Christians and you have your complementary Christians. Mm-hmm. Lie detector Christians are those who experts, man, at seeing the lies. Like they can spot the falsehood in a false worldview right there. And mm-hmm. I mean, they're going to tell you, no, the gospel is right and this is wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And then you got people on the other side who they, uh, the complementary Christians, are always so focused on the longings behind those myths mm-hmm. that we believe that they wind up just simply sort of confirming and affirming whatever it is that people already mm-hmm. believe, and they sort of have this gospel baptism over whatever the longing is that someone already has without ever letting that longing actually be challenged mm-hmm. by by uh, the scriptures. And so th- what what we have to be able to do as Christians is to say, look, 
it's not enough to just see the lies, and it's not enough to just show how the gospel answers longings. The gospel does both of those things. Mm. It doesn't just say, this is right, this is wrong. It says, this is better. Right. The gospel story yes. is better. And good missionaries are going to have to, we're going to have to be able to, to expose the lies of our culture, but also hold on to and show how the gospel answers those deeper longings, why people want those lies to be true in the first place. I think that's the deeper question we have to we have to wrestle with and we have to, as Christians, be be equipped to answer. Yeah, it would seem that good as good missionaries, we're constantly telling people um, the thing that you're going after, the longing is good, but the thing you're going after will not satisfy. Or the way you're going after yeah. that longing is not yeah. going to satisfy. That's right. So if you think about the sexual revolution, or you think about uh, people who have uh, the transgender movement, that that we have to see these people not as enemies, really, right? But as people who are, are, are searching after something. And the gospel just offers a better story, a better narrative, right? That's right. And and I, you know, one of the, I, I wish I had come across this illustration earlier. I would have put it in the book. Um, I recently was reading, I'm reading through C.S. Lewis's letters, mm-hmm. and I, I read a letter that he wrote in the early 1930s to Arthur Greaves, who was a lifelong friend of Lewis's, Christian, struggled with same-sex attraction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but And they're having this conversation about God's will and about sin. And when, and Lewis uses this amazing analogy in a letter. He, he talks about taking a dog, his dog on a walk. The dog uh, goes up to the, lamp, to the lamppost, and you know what a dog does at a lamppost. Right? Right. After that, though, um, the dog wants to go forward, and he's on a leash, and he gets caught around the lamppost, and he's pulling to go forward, and the owner is, is pulling him back. And the, uh, Lewis uses the example there and says, look, I share the same longing as that dog. I want the dog to get forward and to go forward on this walk and to have the the joy of this walk with me. Uh, that's what the dog wants. We share the same thing. And what he what Lewis says is God is like that. God shares mm. the longing that people have, even when they're pulling against the leash and they don't understand why. But God does not sympathize. So he understands the longing, mm. but he does not sympathize with the way that the dog wants to get on the journey because he knows that that dog is actually going to strangle itself if it just pulls that way. So the owner's pulling back, not because he wants to keep the dog from joy, but because the owner sees the big picture and understands that this way forward will never lead mm. to to joy. It's only going to lead to strangulation. Mm. And so Lewis applies that to theology and to sin to say, when God is is pulling us back from our own selfishness or our sinfulness, or in, in Lewis even says, even in the vilest acts of sin we could commit, God understands the deeper longing mm. of what would push us there, but He is ruthless in pulling us back because He knows that the only way that we'll actually uh, receive true joy is by by being pulled back, set free, so that we can then move move forward. And I I just think that's a terrific example of how Lewis is showing what I'm showing in This Is Our Time, that we have to be aware of both the longing and the lie if we're going to true if we're going to be faithful Christians in this time um, on mission in the culture God has called us to. That's really good. That's a really great way to end. I, I really, I think this is a just a great book, and I really encourage people to go out and, and, and purchase uh, This Is Our Time. You know, if you're a pastor or church leader and you're trying to think through how do I lead and faithfully shepherd my people. But uh, even if you're not, if you're a parent, if you're a mom or a dad, or uh, just anybody trying to navigate their way through through what, it, what is it like to be a faithful Christian in this time, in this place, it's a really helpful guide. And so I uh, really appreciate this and encourage people to get it. So uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Dan.
Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster and scheduling by Marie Delft. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.